In 2006, MySpace was the most visited social media website in the world. It was overall the most visited website in the entirety of the United States of America. It it was a place where you could go and you could identify who your top friends were. You could have a song playing to your romantic flame and you could publish your life's manifesto on this new technology called a web log or a blog, right? And this morning, I will pay anyone in here $100 if you can log into your MySpace account. Because popularity quickly plummeted with a depreciation similar to that of a beanie baby, right? For a lot of us, what we have come to expect from the Christian life is an ark that looks just like that, isn't it? Someone comes to faith and comes into the life of the church and they seem so passionate and so eager and so enthusiastic about serving the Lord and they begin to trend up and all of a sudden their name is the first one on the mission trip sign up and their name is at the top of the list on the community outreach day and they're just all in at all the services and at all the activities and they begin this upward trajectory then all of a sudden it peaks, doesn't it? It peaks. And this downward movement begins to happen as they begin to pull back and they're they're tired and they're guilt-ridden and they're burned out and they had this upward arc and then it peaks and begins to, to trail off downward. So common is it that it's almost what we expect to happen in the church. It's almost what we expect to take place in the life of young Christians. And it's what we expect because very often it is what we have ourselves experienced. Jesus in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, he identifies this, right? It wasn't, it's not new or original to the 21st century. Jesus talks about uh, seed being scattered into shallow soil and it springs up quickly and looks impressive, but withers and dies because it never takes root. Even in the life of true believing Christians who want to devote themselves to the Lord, what they find is that they're hot for the Lord. And then all of a sudden priorities begin to push in and the kids have ball practice and overtime becomes reality. And you you begin to pull back home and you begin to relax and to rest. And you say it's just going to be a short-term rest, but over time a short-term rest transforms into overall withdrawal, right? And if you look back over your life, you would say there's been a life cycle that looks like an ark. This morning, what we're gonna see is Paul addressing that. And what Paul is gonna be talking about is how we can move into a life of faithfulness in following Christ, a life of pursuing the Lord Jesus. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter two? Philippians chapter two. When you get to Philippians chapter two, would you stand with me? as we read God's word together. And you can go ahead and put your uh, Bible marker right there on Philippians, baby, because we're gonna be plowing through here, all right? So just over time, it's just gonna fall right open right there, okay? All right, Philippians chapter two, we're just gonna look at verses 12 and 13 today. Philippians chapter two, verse 12 says, "'Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. This morning you may be seated. If you'll remember where we were last week, we read last week what is one of the most theologically profound, theologically rich texts in all of the Bible. And if you'll remember how it adds, so so it starts off talking about Christ humbling himself and emptying himself and being obedient all the way to death on a cross. And then it gives us a therefore in verse nine, right? And in therefore, it is indicating the response of God the Father to the obedient sacrifice of God the Son. And it says that God the Father sees the humility of Christ and sees the obedience of Christ and that he holds him up and he says, before him, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that his name is above every name. When we come to verse 12, we get another therefore, don't we? We get another therefore. And we're supposed to be drawing these parallels in our minds. So in verse nine, we have the response of God to the obedience of his son. And in verse 12, we have the response of his church to his obedience. That there's these parallel therefores. And so what Paul is presenting is to say, do you see a Jesus as great as this? Do you see a Christ as humble as this? Do you see a savior as wonderful as this? How will you respond? How will you live in light of who Christ is? See, Jesus changes our actual lives, not just in theory. Theoretical Christianity is popular among cultural Christians, but it is not biblical and it is not real. All of us have witnessed theoretical Christianity. All of us have perhaps partaken in theoretical Christianity. We've all seen the football coach that lists on his board that faith is the top priority and then it never seems to have a place in practice. We've all been those parents that say that faith, that our pursuit of Christ is the chief priority of our family, but then nothing in our, our family's priorities actually seem to reflect that. These are cases of theoretical faithfulness, theoretical Christianity, Christianity that that doesn't affect who you are and what you do and how you spend and where you go. And so Paul is pushing back here and he's saying, look at Christ. Christ didn't just teach obedience. He was obedient. Christ didn't just teach humility. He was humble. Christ isn't just calling you to take up your cross, to deny yourself, to follow him. No, no, Christ denied himself. Christ took up his own cross. Christ was obedient even unto death upon a cross. That the faithfulness of Jesus was not in theory, but in reality. That the Christian life cycle is to be characterized like the life of Christ from birth all the way until death, even death upon a cross, to have a trajectory of faithfulness, to have a trajectory toward godliness, to have a trajectory toward obedience. That the Christian life cycle is not intended to reflect an arc where you're born into the kingdom of God and trend upward for a little while and then have a hard crash. That the Christian life cycle instead is more to reflect that of a stumbling baby. The baby is born and it's weak and it's vulnerable and it begins to take a step and the step 
forward. Then it falls down flat on its backside and, and dad, dad picks it up and puts it on its feet again and begins to walk and take steps. And he takes two steps sideways to one step forward. And so stumbling and, and staggering and, and as messy as it is, the baby is growing and every stumbling, messy step is a step closer to maturity, a step closer to manhood. And you see, brothers and sisters, that is what it looks like to follow after Christ. You're not going to be perfect and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be messy and it's going to be hard. And you're going to take steps sideways and you're going to fall flat on your back. But sometimes, sometimes you're going to experience that, that forward pull of the Almighty. He's going to pick you up and put you back on your feet that you can begin to pursue him again. And so what we see Paul doing here is to explain to us how we how Christians can keep growing in Christ. How Christians can keep growing in Christ. How Christians can increase their joy in Christ. There's really two sides of the same coin that he presents here. One in verse 12 and another in verse 13. In verse 12, we see him telling us about our work in Christ. And in verse 13, we see him talking to us about Christ's work in us. So it's our work in Christ and it's Christ's work in us. And these are two sides of the same coin that come together to move the Christian along in his life and to move the Christian toward her own maturity. So first let's look at verse 12. And what I want us to see is that we are to work hard to obey. You are to work hard to obey. There's a specific reason here that I say um, that this is about us keeping growing, right? Do you notice how he starts off with the Philippians? He says, therefore, my beloved. And man, what a pastoral way Paul is writing this, right? Paul could demand from on high, but instead he appeals to his love for them. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So, so in Paul's mind, the church at Philippi was a faithful church. In Paul's mind, the church at Philippi was already an obedient church. Now we know that Philippi had its problems, right? We know that Philippi had grumbling. We know that Philippi had divisions. We know that Philippi was struggling with, with perversions of the gospel. But in Paul's mind, in light of all of those things, what Paul sees is a church that he believes to be obedient, a church that he believes to be faithful, a church that encourages him forward in his steps. So in other words, what Paul is saying is you're, you're not where you need to be. Praise God, you're not where you used to be. You're not where you used to be. You're being obedient. You're pursuing the Lord, but you got issues. You got problems. So the goal here, the goal here is not to beat you down. The goal here is not to deflate you. The goal here is not to crush your spirit. No, 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 my beloved. The goal is for you to keep stumbling forward. The goal here is that you would keep staggering forward in your Christian life in pursuit of Christ so that by this time next year, you're not who you are right now. As you have always been obedient, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As you have always honored the Lord and encouraged me, continue to seek new ways to honor the Lord. And so what we see is that the goal is for a lifetime faith being lived out in lifetime faithfulness. You see, this is the opposite of what guilt brings, right? You see, the work of guilt brings short-term behavior modification into your life, doesn't it? But that's not the goal of the church. 
That's not Paul's goal for Philippi. The, the goal for a Christian is not that they would stop cussing for a little while and begin to come to church more often. That's not the goal. The goal is like the Philippian Christians to move from the milk to the Gerber to the meat, right? Like, like the, the goal is, is that they would uh, be uh, transformed over the course of a lifetime of faithfulness. And what most of us have experienced in our Christian walk is we feel guilty for a little while and we do a little better for a little while because we're trying from the outside in to transform what we're doing and modify our behavior to fit some idea of what we believe godliness looks like. And in fact, we run down and run dry and eventually give up. But what Paul is calling us to is so much more beautiful than that. What Paul is calling us to is to live a faith out over the course of a lifetime that is born with a passion for God, that is filled with, with a desire to know the Lord and to please the Lord and to walk with the Lord. See, there's something about this passage that probably lands a little bit strange with most of us. If you've been a part of a church like this one for any particular time, you know we are grace-loving folks around here, Right? Like every time I look in the mirror, I know, man, I, I am thankful for grace. I pray and I'm thankful for grace. And so what we know and we understand is what it teaches in Ephesians 2, right? The same writer Paul teaches us that salvation is through, by grace through faith, right? Not by works, it's by grace through faith. So, so what are we left to do with this? That if we believe that salvation is not by anything that I do and salvation is by my confidence and my faith in what Christ has done and in the sufficiency of Christ, what are we to do here in verse 12 when Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? He implies here that there are works involved in salvation. What we have to remember is in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, when he says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is quickly followed by verse 10, when it says, we are, Christ, uh, we are God's workmanship prepared for good work, good works that he's prepared beforehand for us, right? That, that, that grace and works always come together. And so there's something specific that he wants us to think. And I think that it's important here that we talk about two pretty long theological words, if you guys will just, just hang with me for a second. Because we have a shortened understanding of what salvation means. We have, we, have a, we have a very modified, shortened, truncated view of what it means to be saved that was different than what Paul understood it to mean. See, the difference in what Paul is talking about is the difference in the relationship between justification and sanctification. All right, so, so justification, that's what we typically think about when we think about salvation. What we typically think about is that moment when we place our faith in Christ and we are washed clean and we are made right in the eyes of God and credited with the righteousness of Jesus. See, justification is when God accepts you. It's when he as judge declares that you are clean and you are pardoned and you are now one of his children. And when we think of salvation, that's what we think. The moment in which our faith is placed in Christ and we are justified in the eyes of God. But what Paul has in mind is sanctification, which is included under the umbrella of salvation in the New Testament. That where justification is our acceptance in the presence of God, sanctification is our transformation by the hand of God, by the transformation of God's presence in us. So you see, there's a sense in which you have been saved. And then there's another sense in which you are being saved. 
You have been saved and you are being saved. You have been saved, you will be saved forever. John 5 says that you have already walked through the judgment, you already passed through the judgment, that, that you have already been declared by Almighty God as the receiver of a crown, as one of his sons and his daughters to come and to enter into his kingdom with him forever. And yet, and yet you are still being saved to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, sanctification is God's changing us. It's bringing our life into greater submission to Christ. We have already been made God's children, but we don't yet fully live like it. We have already been assured the kingdom of God, but we are not yet fully surrendered to his kingdom. We have been justified, but we are being sanctified. Christ has made you righteous before God, but you are not yet righteous in your living. We, are, we have been saved, but we are being saved. We are applying that salvation to every area of our life, bringing it into submission to our new king. See, throughout the New Testament, eternal salvation is marked by lifetime transformation. Eternal salvation is marked by lifetime transformation. And the point of verse 12 is that in this transformation, in this, this formation of your character into that, which is the character of Christ, you play an active role. That you have responsibility before God to participate in your own surgery. That you have responsibility before God to take steps toward him and to pursue godliness in him. So when we read, work out your own salvation, it's not saying work yourself into salvation. And it's not saying work out a way to save yourself. Instead, what it's meaning is carry out your salvation. Carry out your salvation in your life. Brothers and sisters, you were a slave that has been set free. Live in your freedom. Your bondage was bound by the flesh and by the appetites of the flesh. You have been set free. Live in your freedom. You were an orphan, bankrupt and impoverished, starving to death on the slop of the world. And the king of kings brought you to his table and laid out his feast before you. Live like a child of God. See, that's what he's talking about. You aren't working to increase your value in the kingdom of God. You are working because you have been brought into the kingdom of God and you see God high and lifted up and you realize his immeasurable value and now you are attempting to live a life that is in, a, in praise, wonder, glory and acknowledgement of that glory. So you might think of it, that, that, that Jesus is the artist. You are the masterpiece. That, that through the gospel in you, Christ has done what is supernatural, what only Christ can do. And Christ being the painter has done in you a work that is too immeasurable for you to articulate. And so what your responsibility is, is not to paint the picture. Your responsibility is to put it on display. To put it on display. To show the world the wonder of what this Christ can do. We are to show how wonderfully Jesus has saved us by humbling ourselves as Christ and obeying as Christ and loving as Christ. We are to carry out in the fullest degree what Christ has already displayed. See, brothers and sisters, it is easy for us to embrace a cheap grace gospel. It is easy for us to embrace a cheap grace gospel that says, because my works don't save me, my works don't matter. 
It's, it's easy to embrace a cheap grace gospel that says, because I can't earn my way into the kingdom of God, nothing I do is of any consequence, except, except that God has made you responsible to participate in the formation of your own character into the character of Christ. You see, when Jesus redeemed you, when Jesus saved you, Jesus redeemed your works too. Jesus saved your works too. Before salvation, everything that you did added to the debt that you had towards your own condemnation. You realize that? Everything that you did prior to Christ was you declaring your independence from God. Every good work that you did was to put on display, God, I don't need you. God, I don't want you. God, I'm rebelling against you. Every good thing that you did added increase to the deficit of the grace that you required. But now, now, now you have been set free. Your heart has been brought to life. You now have replaced a sin nature with the nature of the Holy Spirit in you so that you can offer your works and say, God, this is not because I am great. This is because you are great. God, this is not so that my name is increased. This is so your name is increased. This is not so people think highly of me. This is so others think highly of you. This is not the result of me trying to change me. This is the result of the change that you have already brought and are still bringing in my life. You aren't working out your salvation to prove your value or working out your salvation because God has revealed his value. And so with fear and trembling, not that God will be punitive towards you, not that you will suffer some great punishment in the hands of God or be smote by God, but that instead that you have had a God so kind, a God so gracious, a God so wonderful that you don't want to shame his name. And so with fear and trembling, you take those imperfect efforts and those imperfect motives and those imperfect attitudes and you bring them in honor of his name and say, Lord, I could never express your glory clearly enough. I I could never express your humility clearly enough. I could never show the world you're wonderful enough. And so Lord, with a trembling hand, I come bearing your name, attempting to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember, that's the main idea. See, the idea is that we would work hard because a sinner isn't easily changed. A sinner isn't easily changed. It's hard work to participate in your own surgery, right? Like, like if you've got to run the scalpel over your own heart for the open heart surgery, that's hard work. And it's hard work to be humble, isn't it? In a world that's completely focused on yourself, a world that tells you to look deeper within yourself, a world that tells you to follow after your own heart when he says to take up your cross and to follow after Christ and to humble yourself as the Savior has humbled himself. That's hard work. That doesn't come naturally to you, but supernaturally. It's hard work when you're filled with bitterness and anger toward a friend that betrayed you or a dad that walked out on you or a, or a husband that abused you to be filled with that kind of anger, to be filled with that kind of, of, of resentment and bitterness. It's hard work to forgive, isn't it? It's hard work to remember that Christ has forgiven you so much. I confess to our elders this morning that there has been bitterness in my heart that I continually have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me again today. 
Forgive me again today because it's hard work because I am a sinner and performing my own surgery beside the hand of God is hard work. It's hard work to count others more significant than yourselves. Does that come naturally for any of you? It's hard work to love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard work to pursue after Christ with reckless abandon. It's hard work to live against the culture of your high school and the culture of your workplace. It's hard work to love your wife as Christ loves the church. It's hard work to constantly be offering mercy and forgiveness in a world that is always beating you down and beating you down. It's hard work to be kind and to love your enemies and to pray for them. It's hard work when the soldier comes and asks you to go with him one mile, to go with him two. It's hard work. Brothers and sisters, we, we who have followed after Christ, we who go in his likeness, we who carry his name must do the work. We must work hard to obey Christ that the name of Christ might be elevated and exalted in our community, in our homes and in our lives. The second side of the coin that we see is that it's not just the work that we do in Christ, it's the work that Christ does in us. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So on one hand, we work hard to obey. And on the other hand, we rest confidently in God. See the contrast between those words? Work and rest. Work and rest. And brothers and sisters, that is the glory. That is the glory of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, is there's this beautiful harmonization of both work and rest in the life of the believer as we seek to please God with our lives. See, the only way to continually work hard is to continually rest well, isn't it? It's the only way. And I'm convinced that the reason there are so many burnt out Christians in the 21st century is not because they are overworked, but because they are so poorly rested in the Lord. See the fear and the trembling that he talks about at the end of verse 12, it's a reminder that you can't. You can't change your heart. You can't change your mind. You can't change what you want to do and what you like to do. You, you can't change and make yourself righteous. You can't deliver you. And if you try, you will wear down, bearing a weight that you can't bear and it will erode your passion. It will erode your desire. And ultimately you will withdraw, trying to find a rest, a rest that is elusive, a rest that you never find, a rest that won't ever come. How many of you have experienced that? How many of you have withdrawn from the work of the Lord, withdrawn from your pursuit of Christ, thinking, I just need to rest? And you wake up the next day and you think, I still need to rest. And you wake up the next day, think, I need more rest. I'm not rested. It's because we're searching for our rest apart from God rather than finding our rest in God. See, this is what he says. Yes, you're supposed to work, but you're working out what God is working in. And if you want to have more energy for working out, then what the, the, the job is not to withdraw from the things of God. It's not to withdraw from the scriptures and to withdraw from disciplines and with, withdraw from the church and withdraw from your devotion. No, instead it is to go deeper in those things and to allow God to fill you up so that then you can pour out. The issue is, is we are trying to bear the weight of the change and bear the weight of responsibility. And we're depleting and depleting and depleting and we're never filling up. But what 
what Paul is reminding us is we can rest. We can rest. It doesn't all depend on you. It isn't all on your shoulders. You aren't the one that is ultimately responsible. You see, brothers, I hope this is good news to you. But you know what he's saying? God isn't finished with you yet. God isn't finished with you yet. So don't fall into dismay. Don't fall into despair. When you sin and you think, how could a Christian ever? I'm pulling back. No, no, don't go when you, when you get beat down with bitterness and think, how could a Christian ever? And pull back. Don't look at the other believers in the church and think I'm not like him or I'm not like her. I'm not measuring up, so I'm, I'm pulling back. I'm gonna let them take the reins. No, 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 brothers and sisters, God isn't finished with you yet. God is at work in you. God is working in you that you might work out what he has poured in. So you can rest. You can rest because it doesn't all depend on you. You can rest because hard as the work is that you have been called to, its purposes and its effectiveness within the providence of God has already been assured through the presence of God in you. You play an active role in your transformation, but it's because God is already active in you. It all depends on God. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, for it is God who works in you. What is rest? Rest is where we go to get energized, isn't it? Rest is where we kind of withdraw that our, our, our energy reserv uh, reserves might be uh, re reignited or refilled in some way. And the word that he uses for work in verse 12 is the word energy. We get our word energy from. That literally in Paul's mind is that God energizes you for the work of sanctification. That God fills you up to do what you need to do. That God brings you rest even in the midst of service, even in the midst of labor. And all of you know, you know that you can work and rest at the same time, right? And if you don't think you can, if you're a deer hunter, you don't understand what I'm talking about, right? It's hard work to deer, deer hunt. It's hard work to play golf. It's hard work to go camping. And what do we say about those things? They replenish us. They re-energize us. They, they, they help us come back to center, right? That's the idea here, is to rest your confidence in the Lord and to serve him in the church out of the energy that he brings. It's to serve him in your Christian life out of the energy that you find in your faith and your hope and your confidence in the Lord. See, the essence of the Christian life is I can't unless God does. I can't unless God does. I can't be righteous unless God makes me righteous. I can't overcome anxiety unless God gives me faith. I can't forgive my dad unless God brings forgiveness into my heart. I can't overcome this addiction unless God transforms my appetite. I can't value others more value, count others more valuable than myself unless God changes my heart. And you see, brothers and sisters, what he is reminding us of is that if we will pursue these things in our life, we will not labor in vain. We will not labor in vain because though we are working on the outside to bring our lives in submission to the King, he is working on the inside to change who we are fundamentally so that we might do these things. So Iron City, I call you to rest confidently in the Lord. Rest confidently in the Lord. Are you on the edge of giving up teaching? It doesn't depend on you. Rest confidently in the Lord. Are you about to throw in the towel and working with ch children or youth? It doesn't depend on you. 
It doesn't depend on you. Their blank stares are not an indictment on you. Rest confidently in the Lord. If you've thrown in the towel on your devotion life, if you've thrown in the towel on your discipleship because it wasn't happening the way that you thought it should or as quickly as you expected. No, no, no. It doesn't rest on you. Keep after it. Rest confidently on the Lord. See, the order is everything. Do you notice what he says? In verse 12, uh, verse 13, let's read it together. For it is God who works in you. And look, look what is, how does God work in us? What is, to what end does God work? both to will and to work, both to will and to work. And y'all, the order is everything there. Do you know what he's saying? The word will, it's what you want to do. It's what you desire to do. It's what you pursue in your life. It, it's it's what, you are, what you are going after. And so what is he saying that he's accomplishing in us? He's changing what we do by changing what we want to do. Do you see that? He's changing the works of our life by changing our will first. So in other words, what he's doing is he's not coming against your will. He's not coming and making you like twist your arm. This is our understanding of the church, right? Like, okay, pastor, like you've guilted me long enough, right? Like I'll go on a mission trip because I've heard about mission trips over. I don't want to. I don't want to, I don't like to. I'm not, I'm not happy about it, but I'm gonna go because you've, and man, how many testimonies like that have we heard? But that is not the idea. The idea is that God comes upon you with his Holy Spirit and he begins to transform your desires to be like his desires. He begins to transform your wants to be like his wants. He takes your will and he conforms it to your will so that ultimately you do the work, not because you're under compulsion, not because you feel guilty, but because God has made you want to do it. God has changed your heart by changing your will. God is changing your work. So God enables us to serve out of joy, not out of guilt. God is dishonored by guilt-ridden offerings. Do you realize that? In 1 Corinthians 9, you know what he tells the, the Corinthian church, which was a generous church? He, he tells them, look, if you're gonna give your offering and not be cheerful about it, it's better that you just hold on to it. Just hold on to it. That God is dishonored by guilt-ridden offerings. God is dishonored by elders that serve under compulsion and not willingly. God is dishonored by a church that serves because it has to and not because it gets to. See, that's anti-gospel, isn't it? It's anti-gospel. Did Christ come for you because he had to? Did Christ come for you because he felt guilty if he didn't? Did Christ come for you because he was under compulsion? No, for God so loved the world. Christ came for you because God loved you and God wanted you and God desired you because it was the will of God to come after you. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to live lives that are in alignment with the gospel and flow out of the gospel, we must put aside our guilt-ridden offerings and our guilt-ridden strategies and we must instead take up offerings of love, offerings of joy, offerings of passion. See, that's the evidence of God working in you. Guilt works for the short term. God works for the lifetime. Guilt works for the short term. God works for the lifetime. Do you see the difference? 
And I wonder how many of times that the arc of the Christian life is the result of a guilt-ridden obedience rather than a passion-driven faithfulness. What about in your life? What about in your life? See, this is the vision of Iron City Baptist Church. You understand that? that? That's what I hope is so extraordinary when you come inside the doors here, is that our goal is not for you to do stuff. Our vision is not for you to be busy. Our vision is not that, that you know that, that something is going on at the church all of the time. Our vision is that you would find joy in Christ. Our passion is that you would live a life devoted to Christ because you love Christ. Because you want Christ. You want to please Christ. Think about the Connect Disciple Go. That's our strategy, right? Do you know why we do connect this out? We want you in a connection group, not because we need to add something else to your calendar. You are busy enough. You're too busy already. The reason that we wanna put you in a connection group is we want you to see the power of what God does in the life of a community devoted to him. Because we believe that'll increase your joy. We believe that when you see the presence of Almighty God at work among a group of people, and then all of a sudden He begins to work in your life and you begin to realize, man, I, it happened slowly. I didn't see it, but I am not who I used to be. All of a sudden, it is a source of joy in your life. You know why we want you to be in disciple groups? You know, you know why we want you to be discipled? Because mature Christians have more joy than immature Christians. Mature Christians have greater contentment than immature Christians. Mature Christians have better systems to process the brokenness of the world than immature Christians. It's not so that you can pass a theology test. It's not so that you can be a part of a book club. It's so that your joy in Christ might be advanced. It's so that your joy and worship of God Almighty might be increased. It is a much more glorious vision than guilt-ridden offerings. See, we want you to go. We want you to go because we believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive. We want you to go because this life is not just about your joy. It's about the joy of all peoples. It's about the joy of your coworker. It's about the joy of your classmate. It's about your joy of the, your neighbor that lives in a country you can't even pronounce. It's about their joy and it will increase your joy to advance for their joy. So we want you to connect, disciple, go, not to make you busy, not to build a big church, but to have people of joy walk in obedience to God Almighty. So brothers and sisters, I asked you this morning to lay down your guilt-ridden offerings. I would rather you not give. I would rather you not serve. I would rather you not do. Because as your pastor, I love your joy. I love your joy. I don't want my kids to serve, to do, and to be obedient in misery. I bring boundaries in my home so that they can have joy and so they can flourish and thrive. Oh, Iron City, that's the vision. That's the vision. Maybe there's a question that pops into your mind. We're talking about all this and, and look, I'm the first to tell you, I'm an idealistic guy, all right? And being an idealistic guy sometimes gets me in trouble because we don't live in an ideal world, right? And there's, there's a tension that brews here in the heart of a, of a 
unfinished Christian in the midst of a fallen and cursed world, isn't there? Like there's this thought of, okay, Cody, like I want to serve the Lord for out of joy. And I get that God is at work to change my wants and my desires, but that doesn't happen all at once. And so if I'm supposed to do what I want to do, what do I do when I feel like God is calling me to do something that I don't want to do? What, what do I do when I feel like God may be moving me toward missions and I don't want to go on missions? What, what do I do when God may be moving me toward a deacon ministry? I don't want to serve in deacon ministry. What, what do I do when God may be moving me to work with children? I really have no desire to work with children and I know that it may be God. So how do I reconcile doing things for joy when, when, when I think God is calling me to do something that I just don't want to do? That's where he lands the plane. That's where he lands the plane. To will and to work for what? His good pleasure. You see, there's a primary desire in the life of a Christian. A primary desire. The primary desire is not for an easy life. The primary desire is not for health and prosperity. The primary desire is not to be well-respected in the community. The primary desire, the the offering that you make unto the Lord with fear and trembling, this life that you have is that God might take pleasure in you. In other words, that you might increase by your life the joy of God, that you might increase the delight of God in your life. So there's a superior desire. Do you see this? You see this? I don't want to serve in the church, but I want to bring pleasure to God. And so if my supreme desire is to bring pleasure to God and serving in the church will bring pleasure to God, then I will bring pleasure to God through serving in the church. See, the goal, when when you find a moment in your life when you want to please God and you don't want to do what God is calling you to do, the, the answer is not to give in to guilt. The answer is not to give in to guilt. The answer is not to operate out of compulsion. The answer is faith, faith. That God, this is a lonely road. God, this is a road I can't see around the corner. This is a road I can't see over the horizon. This is a road I don't want to walk. This is a place I don't want to go. But as an unfinished work, as an unfinished saint, as someone who has been saved, but is still being saved, I come to you in faith, in faith, oh Lord, that this will work together for my good. I come to you in faith, oh Lord, and I offer to you my obedience, not because I feel guilty, but because I want to bring pleasure to you, because I want to bring glory to your name. It is the supreme desire of my life. And so Lord, I come to you in faith and I offer you this little bitty faithfulness that I have. I offer to you this small ministry that you're calling to me, not because it's convenient, not because it's comfortable, not even because in this moment I want to, but because Lord, my greatest pleasure is your pleasure. I take pleasure in pleasing you. And Lord, I know that if I am pleasing you, if I am bringing joy to you, that Lord, that in and of itself, if no other fruit comes, will bring joy to me. So Lord, I take my life and I offer it wholly and entirely, not out of guilt, but in faith to you that you will be pleased. Brothers and sisters, this morning, This morning, will you offer your lives and faith to the Lord? 
Will you lay down your guilt-ridden compulsions? Will you lay down your guilty offerings and instead come to the Lord with your hands open and your heart bowed and your face before his cross and say, humbly, as you walked, I will walk. As you obeyed, I will obey and I will do it for your pleasure and ultimately for mine too. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.